So we're starting a new message series today. Over the next five weeks together, I think we'll be swimming in some deep spiritual waters as a community. So I thought we'd take, you see what it is already, some time at the start of our message to maybe learn a little bit from someone who's had a lot of experience, coming up on his 400th episode, I believe. Maybe not a lot of wisdom, but still an opportunity to learn. So every week we'll be getting a different lesson at the start of the message from Homer Simpson. Just to let you know what's going on here, this is the particular episode from season 7. This is all the way back in 1995-1996. Homer, to this point, thinks that his mother died years ago. What happened, in fact, is that she had to go on the lam because she was involved in radical politics in the 60s. And what she did is she unleashed a cloud of antibiotics on evil Mr. Burns' germ warfare lab. And so she's been on the run for so long. And in this episode, she resurfaces and they're reunited. But what happens is she's found out. She has to go back into hiding. At the end, mom has to leave. Now Homer, if you know the series at all, is famous for acting like a child, not a mature one. He always is acting out. He's always acting up. But here, with his most important tie severed that he just had reestablished, the call of unrequited human longing for his mom, that's gone. What does Homer do? He sits down at the end and just gazes up at the stars. Who knew it? Homer Simpson, contemplative. Homer Simpson, master of spiritual practice. Homer Simpson, teaching us very often what we need to do when we're faced with a situation of pain or difficulty. Just sit down into it. What Homer does, what he realizes, is that the initial connection many of us have in this life with longing, with the sense of really being there with another person, is with our moms, with our parents. But Homer also knows, or at least he learns, that at some point that connection will no longer abide. And so we can follow the call out of that original connection in our lives to a larger connection to the universe, to God, to the mystery, spirit, however we wish to understand that reality. This is the lesson Homer gives us this morning that the strength of our spiritual selves depends upon our ability to realize a source of love and connection that is not unlike what many of us, what I hope most of you receive from your parents, but finally transcends just the love that our parents gave us. We first hear the call of spiritual longing in our lives from our parents, but finally, if we're going to grow spiritually, we have to follow that call elsewhere. Sometimes we follow that away from our parents, and sometimes we follow it back to our parents. And so this morning, I want to tell you about the one and only and obviously unsuccessful time that I ran away from home. It was, I can barely remember, fourth, fifth, sixth birthday. And I got a really, really cool gift that obviously didn't take as well, because if you were part of the work crew that put together the shed that we have out back to store our stuff, you know that I was absolutely pretty much useless during that. But when I was five, I did get a nice gift. My first tool set. A hammer. Bang. A lot of fun. Screwdriver. An awl. Actually, I still don't know what an awl does, but I know I got one of those. 
But what I really, really loved was this. The saw. Cool. I can cut stuff. And that's what I thought about doing. We had those doors in our cellar that you might know, maybe you have them as well, in the house that I grew up in, sort of like the doors that fly off at the Wizard of Oz. They sort of sit almost, almost parallel to the ground, just a little bit of an angle. And what did I do? I sat down right next to it, started sawing those doors. My mom comes out, Kenneth, please stop that. Okay, mom. She walks back in. Kenneth, please stop that. Okay, Mom. <laughs> this time, no warning. No more saw. It's my birthday party, and I'm going to cry if I want to. <laughs> and I did. And I did. And I made that decision like Huckleberry Finn, like Tom, that I was going to stake my own claim in this world and it was time for me to assert my independence. I got four blocks. There's an older kid in the neighborhood who was just out and about and he could see that I was crying and that I was upset. And he said, you know what? Why don't you tell me what happened? And I did. He said, I think it's time for you to go home. And I did. And I got back there, my mom was waiting. I think she knew eventually I would return. And she gave me this big, big hug. She gave me my saw back. And she said, please don't put any more ugly gashes in our cellar doors, and it'll all be okay, and you can enjoy your gift. I didn't saw the cellar doors anymore. I learned that lesson. Really what happened, and what I remember from that experience, was the sense of that hug how safe it made me feel, how connected it made me feel, how I could sense that home was not just knowledge that I thought about as a five-year-old, I really couldn't, but home, my parents, my mom, was a place that I knew, a place that I could rely upon. See, that's also a story of me failing to assert my independence, but that's going to happen. That security, that security is what abides all these years later, 32 years later. It was that hug. Paul Tillich, the great Protestant radical theologian, talked about a movement spiritually through life, from at first a state of union, a state of being known and held. This is actually what it's like in the womb. And then he said, a long period for many of us of knowing both union and estrangement, of moving away necessarily from the places that are safe, back out into life, and yet at the same time having an opportunity to go back to that sense of union. And he said, finally, there's also a place that whether we want to call it dark night of the soul, or whether we want to call it the bottoming out points, or whether we just want to call it as he did, estrangement. We're going to know that place we might feel cut off. And finally, he says, that is the spiritual hope. That at the end of union, estrangement, we might know that sense of reunion. That sense of life being reunited with life and being held and being full. Maybe not in exactly the same way that I knew when I was five years old and I got that hug welcoming me back home, but still that is their scent. That is the sense of full spiritual maturity. That that intimacy with the universe is ours and will not leave us. 
we first come to know this rhythm of leaving and returning from our relationship with our parents, of longing for freedom and independence versus that yearning for connection, for intimacy. It's Mother's Day, we'll give them a pass. This is known by many other names in life. It's known as holding on, and it's known as letting go. Serenity prayer stuff, if that is close to your heart. What's what T.S. Eliot talked about in his poem slash prayer. He said, Oh God, teach me to care and not to care. Oh God, teach me to care and not to care. Now to practice that in life, that is the biggest challenge we face. How to know what to hold on to and what we can shape and what we should hold on to through difficulty and knowing what we need to let go of and say, I cannot do that any longer. It is time to move past that. Teach me to care and teach me not to care. These are the messages a lot of us get very early on in life. And sometimes the balance goes one way, a little too much caring, and sometimes the balance goes another way. Not enough caring. Really good parenting, not perfect parenting, but really good parenting comes in people who can understand that balance between the caring and the letting go, between holding on and saying you're going to have to learn how to handle this on your own. For some of us, this day, this Mother's Day, is a day of joyful connection. Or at least, for me and some of the rest of you who've lost your mom, it's a day of joyful remembrance. And so if this is your experience this day, I wish you fullness of heart and fullness of memory and fullness of a connected faith back to the original source of love in your life. But for some of you, and some of us, I know that this day is not easy. It's still a day of blessing, but at the same time, maybe it's a mixed blessing. One of the great calls of spiritual community is the opportunity to go beyond the surface of things, to get beyond mere superficiality, to get beyond what becomes of all our holidays here in America, the hallmarkization of it. It's not a real word, but you get what I'm talking about. To staying on the surface of things. Just like that middle passage here in the drama, when everything is so completely perfect that it bears no resemblance to what life actually is and what our relationship with our parents actually are all about. Tolstoy said a lot of things that were true, but he said one thing that was manifestly untrue. He said, happy families are all alike in Anna Karenina. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Repeat that. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Happy families, happy relationships with parents are not all alike. I know some people who have the best relationship with their parents, and they can go sometimes a few months without talking. I know some people have great relationships with their parents, they need to talk to them every day. They're not all alike. We cannot substitute out one relationship with a parent with another. We're not in, built that way. We're not all the same. There are different stories to our life. So I want to try and honor your different stories this morning. Because None of us received absolutely perfect love from our parents, from our mom, just as none of you who are parents, and I think you know this already, you don't need me to tell it to you, none of you who are parents are practicing giving perfect love to your kids as well. If you did, they would probably never leave home and you would never be able to get on with your life. So that in and of itself is a blessing right there. Accepting life for imperfections, accepting love's imperfections is the first step towards realizing wholeness in this life. It is why love is never truly love without saying, I'm sorry. And all apologies to Love Story and Allie McGraw and Ryan O'Neill, 
Love means having to say that you are sorry, sometimes over and over again, and learning from it. For some of us, our parents' love was more imperfect than for others of us. There's a great book that has been recommended to me over the years by people who have lived through difficult childhoods, who have learned that they would have to satisfy that hunger for longing and for wholeness from a source other than with their parents. It's called Legacy of the Heart. This is what the author says. He writes, it requires a tremendous leap of faith to imagine that your own childhood, if it was a painful one, that it might have been punctuated by pain, loss, or hurt, that this may in fact be a gift for you. Certainly the unhappiness that you felt was not in itself a blessing. It was not in itself a good thing. But in response to that pain, you learn to cultivate a deeper sensitivity, a heightened awareness, a more powerful intuition, and a devotion to healing in your life and within your love that burns deep within you. And these are gifts that need to be cultivated, recognized, and honored. The author is Wayne Muir. Again, the name of that book is Legacy of the Heart, The Spiritual Advantages of a Painful Childhood. What he's really talking about is this. He's talking about redemption. Redemption is not originally some otherworldly thing. Redemption is very much what's like printed on the side of this little bottle. It is redeeming something for its inherent value that has not been recognized. That's what redemption is about. And excuse me while I empty this and move it a little bit more towards redemption down the road. Redemption for many people who had difficult childhoods, who didn't have a great relationship with their parents, comes out of their own experiences of being parents themselves. And this is where parenthood is a practice. It is a practice of mindfully showing up and committing to our children perhaps what we did not have ourselves but still yearn to share. Redemption comes about, and maybe this describes part of your journey, part of your journey through this life. Redemption comes about when the child of the workaholic grows up and becomes a father who against everything, against everything that he has been trained to do, makes it to nearly every Little League game or play or rehearsal or recital that the child, that their child has. Redemption comes about when the child who grew up in a house where it was only anger and abuse was the ways in which people could respond to each other in times of pain or react to each other in times of crisis. This comes about, this redemption, when that child grows up to be an adult and a parent who is the kind of mother who is able to give security and safety that doesn't promise more than she could ever deliver, but knows that at least within her home that there will be a place that the child can be trusted and loved and nurtured, knowing that there will be always that promise of at least coming into the home once again. These things are the ways of redemption. Redemption in a natural way, not some otherworldly way, not waiting for another life for it to come about. These things are redemption. Understanding redemption I love the most is actually the Jewish one. It says that redemption is exactly this. It is to be in a similar circumstance to what you were like originally in your life and not do the same thing again. Think about that. Think about that. As a parent, as someone who struggles, as we all do, with various issues, and that's what this message series is dedicated to. 
Redemption for us comes about when we find ourselves in the same circumstances once again as we had been in before, and we don't make the same choices that were destructive or dysfunctional or causing pain for ourselves or other people. That is the path of wholeness in life, and that is the path of responding meaningfully to the call and the longing that each of us have to be full, mature people. I've got a book coming out sometime, not my control, sometime in this coming year. It's about the experiences of men as we grow up through roughly 20 to 35 young adult guys, sort of like myself, although I'm 37 now, I'm technically outside of that. I'm approaching middle age, if you can believe it. Approaching. But there's one of the writers in the book who describes his journey, as I understand it, almost sort of like an archaeologist, as I would think. An archaeologist who gently digs down through the layers of sediment that have been collecting in his life over the years and finds there a buried treasure that he did not know he had. His childhood was taken from him, not by will, not because someone intentionally took it from him, but because his father died when he was 10. And so from that point on, he was the man of the house age 10, and he had to take on all those responsibilities. That's what the family told him. That's what his mother told him. That's what the family friends told him. He was the man of the house. And his path of redemption arrived when he decided that as a parent, as a very, very profitable, very successful architect, he was going to be the one, and not his wife, to be the primary caregiver to their children. At the end of his essay, he writes this. He writes about seeing Edward Hopper's picture, if any of you know it, the automat. He talks about seeing it with two of his kids. And he writes, Recently I took Sydney and Grace to the Des Moines Art Center. I was curious how they would respond to the art, particularly, excuse me, some of the more abstract and intellectually challenging pieces. But with a sense of exploration, I decided to guide them through and spend time only when their attention and their notice was caught. Edward Hopper's automat was the first painting that they seemed to notice. I quietly sat down on the floor in front of it. They happily plopped down next to me. We sat cross-legged together and looked up at the paint woman in the painting. They asked me, who was she? I asked them where she was and what they thought she was doing. They talked about her yellow hat. I asked if they could figure out what the weather was like outside the dark window behind her. They determined on their own that it was cold and that maybe it was raining. They began to build a little story for her, develop it, why she seemed sad, why she was alone, what was in the cup that she was holding and the cup she was drinking from, why she might go, where she might go when she left the automat that night. And then he concludes the last two sentences. We sat there. The three of us, in wonder, in curiosity, in discovery, we sat there, the three of us, children. We sat there, the three of us, children. For all the psychobabble about the inner child, it's a real part of us. We can get deep down, gently. We can't do it in the same way that they take coal out of mountaintops. You've got to do it like an archaeologist. Dig down gently, firmly, and see what is contained there within ourselves and know that we do, in fact, possess it if we look deeply enough. Accepting, as this man did, as Greg did, accepting the imperfections of his past, accepting the imperfection that just was built in his life and his dad had to die, 
he was able to have a new understanding of himself and himself as a parent. And sometimes we learn a deeper love for our parents, not in spite of, but because of those very imperfections. Just as we have gratefulness for the strengths that they gave to us, we can also learn to have gratitude for the places where the cracks were in them so that the light can shine into and on our lives. Some of you know the name Jay McInerney. He was a somewhat well-known novelist in the 1980s. He wrote Less Than Zero, which was sort of autobiographical. It was about his life as a literary agent, literary editor. Actually, that was Brett Easton Ellis. He wrote, Jay McInerney wrote Big, Bright Lights, Big City. Brett Easton Ellis wrote Less Than Zero. Excuse me, a little detour there. But what he was writing about was his experience as a guy who was aimless in life. Drugs, alcohol, meaningless sex, all the kinds of things that you know you can find anywhere, but especially in a big city like New York. And he wrote about it and he became famous. And because he came, became famous for doing the wrong things, he did more of the wrong things. Eventually, in and out of rehab, in and out of marriages, he found himself back home, called back home because really he had no place else to go. And back home because his mom was very, very ill with cancer. And in fact, she was going to die a number of months down the road. He wrote about this about 10 years ago. He said that one night he was staying up with his mom and she was sort of going in and out of consciousness. And at one point, she sort of sat upright and became lucid. He started feeding her ice chips to make sure she stayed hydrated. And she said, I have a story to tell you that no one else knows. And no one else will ever know except for you. It turns out that his mother, who was respected by the entire community of the suburban New York, Connecticut, upper-class lifestyle that Jay McInerney grew up in, was respected by everyone. She was a sainted figure. She was at the church. She was at the bazaar. She was every place you needed her to be. Decades ago, she held a secret. What had happened is that she had had an affair with their best friend's husband. She had had an affair. It was a torrid one. It was the kind of thing that threatened to split their marriage apart. Finally, she and the man she was having the affair with decided... They would not continue. They would resume their lives. They would see if they would get back to normal. And for everyone in the world, including Jay McInerney up to this point, she was Saint Mom. And in her saintliness, in her always doing the right thing, he thought he couldn't relate to her. Because he was the screw-up. He was the black sheep of the family. He was the one who went out and earned a ton of money and then burned through a ton of money. But in the final moments, in the final moments of her life, he came to see that, in fact, through her imperfections, their connection was stronger than it ever had been. And so perhaps on this day, when you think of your mother, when you think of yourself as a mother, or as a father, as a parent, you can think not just in the hallmark way, and we can call, be called to think together of not just in the superficial, gee, isn't mom great kind of way, but to know truly her imperfections and ours, and to claim those and name those, and even to be grateful for those. As you all know, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor thy mother and father. And I don't think that's like saying, yes, mother dear, yes, father dear, whenever we're asked to do that. Honoring a person means knowing their story. Honoring ourselves means knowing our story fully. And so on this day, and the days that follow, I invite you, honor your parents, honor your mother, by knowing who they were, loving who they are, forgiving what you can, and integrating from their lives 
truly what you want to bless and take forward. Amen. May you live in blessing.